and a warm welcome to all of you. So glad to see you on such a beautiful day with such a marvelous opening beginning. The, this center and this community has become home for me, not simply in, in the UK, but um, on, this, on this fragile, precious planet. And I'm always so grateful to come back here and to be in a place where attentiveness and respect and compassion shape how we live our lives. Attentiveness to the spirit, respect for differences among us, and compassion for the hurts and the needs of our world. So I'm, I'm grateful to be back. And it was, in fact, the first time I came was to talk about this book, which had just come out now uh, seven years ago. I'd like to begin with a poem from it. And I'll come back to this in a moment. It begins with such a sentiment I think we all can recognize. If only it could all for once be utterly still. If only it could all for once be so utterly still. If the accidental and approximate were muted, including the neighbor's laughter. I love that. You know, all the things that annoy you. There's a yearning in all of us to find a place in our life, a moment, a space in our life where we could simply find stillness. That's really what has led many of us to a life shaped in part by meditation. This yearning to be at home in who we are. And if the noise my senses keep making didn't hinder me in waking, then I could think you, God, I could think you in a thousandfold thought all the way to your bounds and own you. If only in the moment of a smile, and thus give you as a gift to everything alive, like a word of thanks. A beautiful, beautiful thought. And of course, it begins with if only, which is, in a sense, both the promise and the peril of life. Because Rilke is inviting us to something that we yearn for, that we know to yearn for, and that we never achieve. It's not about achieving or mastering or owning or managing or strategizing. It's about simply finding that place of stillness. I hope this day will be a day spacious enough and generous enough. And if I can use the word in its true sense, disturbing enough of our complacencies to awaken in us something of a sense of being at home in who we are. I recognize that some of you may know a lot about Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke's poetry. But for others, this may be a first experience. So very briefly, I'm going to, to introduce you to his life. And then we'll turn to some of the later poems. I began here, 2012, with these early poems he wrote when he was 24 years old, in 1899. And over the last several years, I've been working on finishing a translation, which is now complete. It's not published yet, but it will be soon, I hope of the sonnets to Orpheus. And, and the sonnets to Orpheus represent one of, the, one of the really remarkable achievements of modernist literature in Germany and indeed in European letters. 
So that will be our day. We'll look at only 10 of them um, at varying intensities during the day. There were 55. I'll say more about the sonnets in a little while. But first, who is this man? This will shape our day. One of my favorite writers, Jeanette Winterson. The fiction, the poem, is not a version of the facts. It is an entirely different way of seeing. And that's really what we want to, to be about in our lives, is to find our way to see differently than the, the way that the world around us and the world within us often pushes us to imagine. This different way of seeing, this more generous way of seeing, this more patient way of seeing, this more compassionate way of seeing, is something that the poet Rilke devoted his life to, already as a boy, writing poems, striving to find his way to see differently. And the one novel that he wrote, you know, he called it a kind of poetic work, the notebooks, usually translated as the notebooks of Malte Lorde's Brigge, probably better translated as the sketchbook, because Aufzeichnungen is, a, is an artist's sketchbook. He worked for almost 10 years on this book, which is very strange. It's peculiar. I, I, it took me years to actually get to the end of it. I kept trying <laughs> when I was young. And it's a book that defies, I think, you. It, it, it's, it's an odd book. It's a journal of a young man, Rilke himself, it's largely autobiographical, and much of it is taken from the letters he was writing. He spent part of every day writing letters. It was that generation, the afternoons. He had two, two fountain pens. One he kept for writing letters and for paying bills. The incidentals, the other was only for writing poems. Isn't that beautiful? And a stand-up desk, because he had such a bad back, he couldn't sit for very long. So he wrote at a standing desk, which he carried with him as an itinerant poet throughout his whole life. In that novel, at the very beginning, he says, I'm learning to see. I used to think I knew where things were. But now I find that they've come to a deep place within me, an inner place in my life where I can begin to see. That, I hope, will shape our day together. We're going to read a few poems together. They're strange poems. They're luminous poems. They're not simple poems, in the sense that you can simply take them on a first read. They want to linger with us. And so I have copied them. I trust you won't go out and share them with the world in a public way until they're actually published, because they will be changed. But the 10 that we'll look at today, you'll be able to take with you. So you don't have to try to write them all down. And I'll try to pass them out as we go along. So Let's begin with this fragment of a larger poem, a part of a larger poem that, that Rilke wrote uh, just before the war broke out, the Great War what came to be called the Great War, which was a devastating experience for him as a poet, as a human being. Um, I'll say more about that in a moment. Here are these words. For the matter of seeing, look, is a boundary. In the world, the more we observe it, 
wants to flourish in love. For the matter of seeing, look, is a boundary. We we can't see to the edge of anything. It it always has, there's a horizon always in our world. And as we move, as we move through our life, that horizon changes. But it remains a horizon with edges that we can't see beyond. And the world, the more we observe it, the more we look at it, the more we take it into ourselves, wants to flourish in love. What a marvelous claim to make wants to flourish in love. The work of seeing is finished. Do now the heart work with the images you hold within, for you overpower them, but don't don't yet know them. That's the heart of Ruka. That our life, all the things that you've been given in your life, all the things that you've taken into yourself, the images, and he means images in a broad sense, the experiences, all the things that have happened to you over your life, however long or short it might have been up till now, all of these things aren't finished yet. They're in us, they're waiting in us somehow. They're they're resting in us, waiting for us to give them the kind of flourishing that they want. Not to overpower them, but to let them Find life in us. Let me put this in another way. Many years ago, a a very wise friend of mine, a poet friend, an American poet, quite well-known poet, actually, Christian Wyman, asked me in a sort of a private conversation, said, you know, Mark, do you think that we can change the past? Interesting question. Do you think that we can change the past? I haven't stopped thinking about that question. He meant it very earnestly. And he didn't mean it in a cheap way. Do you think that we can change the past? I'm convinced that he really was understanding something I had never begun to imagine at that time. This is 15 years ago. And slowly I'm starting to see that, yes, this is what our work is, is to change the past, to bring our attention to what we've known but have never really seen, have never really fully seen. That's our work. And part of it, you could say, has to do with forgiveness, to opening ourselves to a deeper compassion for the things that have hurt us and for the things we've hurt, the things that have confused us and the things we've confused, all of those things. But in a way, we're given each day, I think, to come to what we, the reservoir of our lives and to allow it to flourish, to grow, to allow it to become at home in us. So we'll come back to that. Hard work. That's a, a word he, phrased, he, he coined, Herzberg. It's not a word. It's what Germans often do. Some of you may uh, know some German or may even be German. I don't know. But Herzberg, it doesn't really exist as a word. It's putting two nouns together, and that's the way he wrote it. Herzberg, heart work. Um, I've hyphened it, as he does. Heart work is what this day is about. Not mind work, not working on our, with our minds on things, which really doesn't go very far. The, the kind of rational, organizing, constructing mind 
is important, it's essential, but it doesn't take us to the deepest things. It doesn't take us to the place where things are not finished. It tries to finish them. And they can't be finished. They have to finish themselves in us. That's Rilke's thought. So here's one last excerpt from a letter, and then we'll turn to his life. Ah, how little it forgets, the heart. Isn't that true? Your heart just doesn't forget. It's painful things, and it's joyful things. They, they stay there alert and waiting for us to come back to them. And how strong it would be if we did not withdraw its tasks from it before they're fully and truly accomplished. So we, we pull back all the time. I do, you do. We pull back because it's too difficult or it's too delightful or it just overwhelms us, this hard work that we're given to do in our lives. Not the wanting to console oneself for such a loss should be our instinct. Now that's one of my favorite ploys. Oh, if only I had, if only I had, if only, right? You do that, don't you? Oh yeah, I see a few nods. Yes, yes. If we turned off the lights, everybody would be nodding. <laughs> of course we do that. It's, it's hard to do this. It's not easy to do this. And sometimes it's very painful to do this, not just hard. Not the wanting to console oneself for such a loss should be our instinct. Rather, it should become our deep, painful curiosity. I love that. Deep, painful curiosity. Wholly to explore it, the singularity, the uniqueness of this particular loss, to learn its effect within our lives. Yes, we should cultivate the noble avarice of enriching our inner world by this very loss, its meaning and its weight. What a remarkable insight into a kind of deep psychology, a deep journeying of the heart, of the soul, of the spirit. And in a sense, these poems, I think, encourage us to do just this, to, to come his poems. Oh, well, there may be other poems that do this as well, but we're thinking today about Rilke, about his poem. They invite us to come back to the things we've left aside hastily or with hesitation, or perhaps even reluctantly, because we've not known what to do with those dimensions of our experience. People who wrote about encountering with Rilke often commented about his eyes, the penetration of his eyes. He didn't like big groups. If he were here today, I think he'd want to talk with you alone, and then with you, and then he'd get, find a corner where we could talk together, right? He wasn't a person to mingle with the large group. He wanted to see people's eyes. And people said when they were with him, his eyes were magnetizing, magnetic. They just seemed to be drawn to the soul. 1875, December 4th, he dies as a 51-year-old on December 29th, 1926, from a very painful struggle with leukemia which is a difficult disease in our time, but in his time there were almost no remedies for the pain that he had to experience. And you can, this is a late picture taken just a year before his death. There he is as a little boy. His mother hoped for a girl. <laughs> She'd lost a daughter. 
Sophia um, at birth. Uh, and about a year and a half later, he was born as René Karl Wilhelm Johann Josef Maria Rilke. And that was a fashion back then for her, at least, to pile up every large Germanic name she could find. Karl Wilhelm Johann Josef Maria, not uncommon for in Catholic circles still to name boys, a middle name usually, Maria, but René, which was traditionally a female name, which he only abandoned as a young man when he fell in love with a woman we'll meet in a moment, who said, you need to change your name. <laughs> we, we can't go on with this. <laughs> he described his life, his childhood, as an anxious and heavy one, burdened by the kind of clutching piety of his Catholic piety of his mother, the breakup of his parents' marriage, uh, being sent, as he was, at a very early age to a military school, which basically almost broke him apart, trying to write poetry, and publishing, in a small way, poems already during his early, late adolescent years. He eventually begged his parents to let him leave the, the military school, the second military school he was sent to, his father hoping that he would have a noble career as a, as a soldier, which was so far from his, his, his vision of the world. He, they agreed finally if he would uh, finish his exams to enter university, which he did, and he actually never really completed anything. He never finished school. He dabbled at the university for several years, but never really finished much of anything. He was a self-taught person, fluent, became fluent in French, wrote poems in French, struggled to learn Russian, wrote enough Russian to write a few poems, although a close Russian friend of mine says he shouldn't have tried. <laughs> he translated some Russian into German. Part of the, he comes from Prague, which was not a German city, but part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire back when that existed. So he's, when people say, oh, he's one of the great German poets, German language poets, German writing poets, but was not a German. This is Prague during his childhood days, as it would have looked. Here's the Carolus Bridge, which many of you will have seen, with a streetcar, a new thing in his childhood, running across. He lived just across town from um, a younger, child prodigy, writer, named Franz Kafka, eight years his junior. I can imagine them somehow crossing the Carrots Bridge together, you know, Kafka as a little, little boy and Rilke as a boy of 10 or 12 or 14. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Mm. He fell in love as a young man with this beautiful woman, one of the most distinguished intellectuals of her period, a feminist before that we had the word feminist, a radical thinker, a student of Nietzsche. In fact, she wrote the, one of the first serious monographs about Nietzsche's writing, which is still worth reading. Nietzsche fell in love with her, proposed marriage. She refused him. That was a good decision. <laughs> Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine? She was 14 years his senior, really his senior, and she was to him a kind of lover and mother all at once, which is a bad combination. It's just a, you don't want to fall in love with your mother. I mean, Freud would say, well, it's inevitable, but it's not good. And in a sense, actually, she ends up studying with Freud and became his protege, perhaps even his lover. We don't quite know. But if you imagine Lou Andrea Salome, a writer, a novelist, an artist, a translator, a philosopher, being involved with three of the most important men of her day, Nietzsche, Rilke, and Freud. Here they are on their first trip to Russia. She comes, came from St. Petersburg, from a Russian family in St. Petersburg. And uh, as a young man, when they first met, she agreed that they would travel together to St. Petersburg, to her family, her, her home, her place of origin. But they would first go to Moscow together. And their experience in Moscow shaped Hilke's life. That's what I talked about here in 2012, the poems that came after this trip to Moscow, visiting the Kremlin of all places, the first place, which was not the center of the party, of the Communist Party, it was the old city. It, it became that after the revolution. That's after Rilke was there, obviously. But it was actually, it's, it's a, some of you have been to the Kremlin, to Moscow. It's, it's an enclosed, small, uh, it's old Moscow, the old city center, which is filled with churches, nine churches. Most of them were monastic churches. And this one in particular is the one, oops, this isn't working. Anyway, we'll see it in a moment. This, the Church of the Dormition. Rilke arrived on Good Friday in the Orthodox calendar in 1899. And they, he and Lou arranged to meet uh, Tolstoy, the distinguished writer, quite a few years older. Tolstoy was a cynic about the Orthodox Church, was a skeptic in a sense, was a deeply spiritual man, but didn't have much patience for the church. And he warned the two of them to stay away from religion, just stay away from the church and stay away from the peasants. They were no good. <laughs> and so Rilke did just that. He spent as much time as he could, sorry, he just opposed that. He, he thought, well, there must be something in this. So he, he and Lou spent the entire triduum, the, these three days, in the churches in the Kremlin, just going from one to the other. They were full of people, peasants, common people who were there praying, who were there experiencing the great rhythm of the movement of the church here from crucifixion through the long Saturday, what the Orthodox call the long Saturday, to Easter Sunday morning. And Rilke later said that it was that experience that shaped his entire life. This is that church on the inside, completely covered with icons, from floor all the way to the ceiling, including all of the columns, these slender windows. And of course, there were no electric lights in, in Rilke's day. They would have been kerosene lamps and candles. So imagine the echinostasis at the front of the church and covered with gold and coming into those churches at night, the heavy press of the crowds, the, the aura 
of the icons. And of course, he took the, this experience to shape the poems that came from, from this first experience of Russia. He wrote these, this first cycle of poems, which is in this little book, Prayers of a Young Poet, as if they were written by an old Orthodox monk and iconographer, a writer, as the Orthodox say, of icons. So they, the poems tell the story of what this old monk is experiencing through the days of his life. Part of my existence, he wrote in May of that year, just after having arrived in Moscow, is to rest on this experience in Russia. And we'll follow that through to the end of today, because in a sense, the poems that we looked at in 2012, were some of you there for that session? Well, Bridget, yes, you were there. Um, these are, it's a different poetic world, but it's a world of darkness, the luminous darkness, the, the bright darkness, the dazzling darkness. That's a phrase that comes from an Orthodox theologian, Pseudo-Dionysius, or Pseudo-Denis, you might know him as, here in Britain. A writer, probably a monk, perhaps a Syrian, Syriac monk, probably from the 6th century, who attributed his name to the disciple of Paul, a philosopher who was converted by Paul's preaching. We have an, a small account of Paul's interaction with Dionysius in the book of, of, of the Acts of the Apostles. Well, it didn't work out with Aunt Lou. She finally rebuffed Rilke and suggested that really it couldn't work to be in love with your mother. It just wasn't going to work. They remained profoundly respectful friends and intimate friends, although their relationship came to a different level. On the rebound, he met one of the really quite remarkable artists in a community in northern Germany, in a place called Worpswede. It was a haven of a kind of art colony in the late 1890s. And Rilke was invited there by uh, the luminary, the kind, of, the kind of patron of this place, who had built this magnificent large house, Barkov, you can still visit it, in Worpswede, and had gathered around him a, a, a circle, a growing circle of some of the most prominent painters, furniture makers, the Jugendstil, the Art Nouveau period of the time, and Rilke and other writers as well. He met Clara Westhoff, a, a sculptress who had already been in Paris and was working as a kind of unofficial student of, of Auguste Rodin. They fell in love and quickly married. She was already pregnant. Uh, and lived together for about a year in Borpsvede. Here's a picture of them uh, at the little house that they rented in Vestavede, just on the outskirts of Borpsvede, in the Heath region, the Peat Bog region, around Bremen in northern Germany. Here he is with Rodin. He went to Paris at Clara's bidding. She wrote to Rodin and suggested that he take him in, that he needed, could find use for him, and he became, at, for two periods, two periods in the early 1900s, Rodin's personal secretary. In fact, what he knew about work, he learned from Rodin, he says, that life is about work, about the inexhaustible 
demands and invitations of work. And then, after a series of migrations, he eventually, just before the war in 1912, was invited by a countess who owned and lived in this castle, the Countess of Turn and Taxis, to come to this place and reside there. He never really had a home after he left Vesterveda. He was always uh, someone's guest, either in hotels, he always favored fancy hotels, as long as someone else was paying the bill. And he always found people who were willing to do that, usually uh, women who admired him, and some of them probably loved him in whatever ways they did and could. It was here that the Duino, this is Duino Castle in the, on the Adriatic, so northeastern uh, Italy. Uh, it was here that the, the elegies began on a stormy night in 1912, and only 10 years later, the war intervened, which tore him apart uh, spiritually, emotionally, psychically. Um, it was not a dry period, but it was a difficult time for him. Only 10 years later did he finish them, when he found his way to this, what he called, what was called at the time, a Chateau de Muzot, in the Valais region of Switzerland, French speaking Switzerland. Here's how it looked in Rilke's day, a photograph from that period, surrounded with vineyards, so it's fairly low, but ringed with the first range of the Alps. And here he is with the, his chateau in the background. He fell in love in his later years with a woman named uh, Baladin Klozowski. Klozowska was a Polish intellectual and artist, musician. He called her Merlin, his kind of conjuring muse. And she played an important role in the latter flourishing of his life. It was she who gave him a postcard of this engraving from Conaligano, from around uh, the end of the 15th century. Um, and he placed it above his writing table, where he wrote, finished the elegies, and in a flourish, wrote, here she is with him standing at the door of his little um, castle, finished the poems. In three weeks, 55 sonnets, which have forever shaped modern German literature. It's a remarkable story. And for about 10 days of that period, he was working on revised theologies. So he only really worked on them for two stretches of time, about 10 days, and these 55 poems. He said he heard them. He heard them as if they were dictated to him. And I, I, can, I can believe that somehow. Not physically heard them. He heard them in his heart. He heard them somehow within himself. And these poems gave him the, came with a kind of music that he knew already in the early poems, but that found a kind of mature flourishing in its own form. So here we go. We're going to start with a poem. That was just a, a warm-up. So you know a little bit about Rilke. This is 1922. The poems come from this period, which was uh, in Europe a, a, a difficult period, if you know anything about European-German history and European history in general, struggling after the end of the First World War, 
Germany entering into the Weimar period of great hope and collisions and finally catastrophe leading into the 1930s. But Rilke never lived to see any of that. Of course, he dies in 1926. Listening was, from the very beginning of his life, the kind of hallmark of his sense of what the poet's vocation is about, to help us learn to listen. And what are we listening for? What are you listening for? What are you listening for? The first poem, Sonnets to Orpheus. I'll give this to you in a moment in printed form. Who is Orpheus? This sort of muse of a character from Greek legends of Greek antiquity. Ovid writes about Orpheus in his Metamorphoses. He was a kind of godlike figure hovering between the earth and the heavens or the place of the gods. And you know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, his beloved who is bitten by a snake and dies and is sent to the underworld. And Orpheus, brokenhearted, goes to find her. And Persephone and the spirits of the underworld are so moved when he arrives by the, his playing, his singing, playing the lyre and singing, that they're weeping. And they finally allow him to lure Eurydice back into the world of the living with one condition. Do you remember what it is? He cannot look back. He cannot look back. And so he finds her and he turns to go back from the underworld back to the land of the living, playing his lyre and wooing her out with his song. And at the very last moment, in a surge of doubt, he turns to see if she's still there and loses her forever. Incredible story. It's an incredible story. Rilke writes these sonnets to this Orpheus, the great singer of antiquity, the great musician of the soul, marked by this sorrow and this longing for what he lost. And this is the first poem. Impossible to translate, really. The German, the first lines read like this. Da stieg ein Baum, o reine Übersteigung, o Orpheus singt, o hoher Baum im Ohr, und alles schwieg. Doch selbst in der Verschweigung ging neuer Anfang, Wink und Wandlung vor. You hear the music, perhaps, even if you don't understand the German. Da stieg ein Baum. There uprose a tree. Uprose a tree. Oh, pure uprising. Oh, Orpheus singing. 
O towering tree in our ears. And all kept silent. If we go back to that image, whoops. Here he is singing to the animals, to the plants, to the trees. Playing his lyre. Imagine here as a kind of late medieval lyre. It would have looked different in, in Greek antiquity. But playing with that longing on his face, this sort of sorrowful look on his face, playing for whoever will listen. And this, sitting above his desk, is what prompts this opening poem. Oh, Orpheus singing. Oh, towering tree in our ears. The tree, such a strange image. Rilke was so drawn to trees as a kind of archetypal sense of strength, a kind of godlike strength that roots itself down in the earth but lifts its arms up to the skies, into the heavens, and provides shelter for the birds and the animals. And so here's this image of Orpheus singing just as we saw him in this, in the, in this drawing. And everything around is listening, all kept silent. But even in this solitude, a new beginning, a sign and change came forth. Creatures thronged out of the stillness, out of the spacious forest, uncluttered of lair and nest. So they leave the places that are their protective homes. All the animals, the birds, they've come to the, the one making music, the one singing and playing the lyre. What a vision. And they were so still in themselves, these animals and birds. Not from cunning and not from fear, but from listening. Bellows, cries, commotion seemed far from their hearts. And where not even a hut stood to receive them, a shelter made of darkest desiring with an entrance whose jams trembled. You, Orpheus, built for them a temple for their hearing. You, in making music, built for them a temple for their hearing. Du schufst, da schufst du ihn Temple im Gehör, a temple in their hearing. It's a strange poem. It's not a simple poem, is it? It's not one that you would put on a Hallmark card and be able to sell to people who are having a bad day. You know, cheer, cheer up. You'll get over it. Mind the gap, you know, whatever. Be careful. No, no. I mean, this is a poem that wants to work on us, that we'll need time. And these poems, again, I hope this day will simply be a kind of, of invitation and an opening for us to enter a very, sometimes a very strange and marvelous world of the imagining with Rilke. Imagining here who Orpheus really is. Orpheus as a, an archetype of one who holds the world together through song. Right, who holds 
all of the things of the world, the creatures of the world together through the beauty of music. It's an ancient Greek thought that what holds everything in whatever order is there that exceeds our rational understanding is shaped by music. It's shaped by the music of the spheres. Pythagoras wrote about this, but he wasn't the only one, and certainly not the first. And by the time this long tradition entered into Christianity, it was some Christian theologians in the early centuries saw Orpheus as a kind of prototype of Christ, who came into the world singing a love song for the broken creatures who were yearning to find their home. That's how they viewed it. That's how they, that was the Old Testament for Greek antiquity, for Greek culture. The Greeks didn't know much about Jeremiah and Moses. They weren't that interested in these things, but they had stories of the gods. And the Orpheus story was one of the most important stories. He's not really a god, but he's not quite a normal human because his mother, Calliope, is a muse, and his father was a king. Well, Rilke suggests that his father might have been the god Apollo, but that's Rilke's own imagining. In antiquity, he's this sort of almost human who lives between the earth and the heavens and is able to go down, as Christ does, to the underworld, right? Descended where? Into the hell, into Hades. Descended into the underworld. So this story of Orpheus is one that really Christians said, oh, this, is, this is the way the Greeks anticipated what we understand and what we're now exploring in our own faith as a story of Christ. And of course, much of that story isn't in the Bible. It's descended into hell. It isn't in the Bible. It's a story that comes from the tradition. And it has something, I would say, to do with this Orpheus legend. Because these theologians knew this story, and they knew that somehow the singer who wooed the dead to come back to life, to an eternal life, was something like the Christ, whom they knew in faith. It's an amazing story. And, you know, we could spend the whole day just thinking about that together. We won't. We'll move on. <laughs> But, but to have something, a sense of the kind of intellectual adventure of the Orpheus legend is important. Because Rilke is not writing Christian poetry, but the poems that he's writing to Orpheus are not unlike the work of trying to imagine the drama of redemption in a very, how to say, spiritual but not religious sense. It is not narrowly religious, not dogmatic. Rilke wasn't very interested. He had no interest in Christian doctrine or dogma. But what he's doing in his later life, I think, is resurrecting themes that had been lost in modern theology and that he was revoicing for a hungry and very broken world, 1922.
a world that was yearning for Orpheus, for someone who had the courage and who had the beauty to go into the underworld and rescue the lost. That's Rilke's vocation as a poet, to write poems to this godlike, salvific figure for us, not for Orpheus, but for us. And to imagine that somehow we are with the animals and the birds. And in our hurt, the commotion, the bellows, the cries of our own lives, of your life, of our world, that's what occupies so much of our day, listening to the pain that we have to take seriously. Right? It's there. It's unavoidable. You can't, we can't turn from it. But what do we do with it? Well, Rilke knew that something in us longs to find a place to listen for the music that will bring us home again. To listen for the sound of Orpheus' lyre, L-Y-R-E, the lyre, playing the lyre, to bring forth from the dead what is yearning to live again. Bellows, cries, commotion now seemed far from their hearts listening to this Orpheus. And where not even a hut stood to receive them, they're in the woods. They've come out of their lairs, their nests, the places of protection. They're vulnerable. They're, they're so courageous to come out of those places, like perhaps you and I, to come out of the places where we hide in our shame, in our fear, in our regret, in our anguish, and longing to hear a music that will bring us forth. And where not even a hut stood to receive them, a shelter made of darkest desiring with an entrance whose jams trembled, you built for them a temple in their hearing or for their hearing. You built for them in your music. In your music. In your music. And you can almost imagine this as being a way of telling the transfiguration story. One of my favorites. What a, a ridiculous, wonderful story, right? Isn't it? I mean, I taught for many years at a theological school in the States before I moved back to Germany. And I thought this was really, this was originally a Baptist seminary. They built a little Catholic chapel in the uh, 1920s because that was the mode back then. It was so unbaptist. It was dark. It was full of stained glass. And uh, it looked like a little Gothic, a little Gothic, wooden Gothic structure. And above the altar, and it was an altar, be not mistaken, it was not a communion table, which Baptists should have had. It was an altar pushed up against the wall, was a an image of the transfiguration. I loved it. And at the bottom, the disciples asleep, because they were so weary that they had fallen asleep as the miracle was happening. I thought that was perfect for a theological school, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Stay awake. You may miss the miracle. And there was Jesus with Moses 
and Elijah. And finally, when they wake up, what does Peter say? Oh, we'll build a shelter for you. We'll build a hut. We'll build a place. We'll, we'll get you ensconced in a place. And Jesus says, oh, get behind me. No, it's not about that. Great story. Yeah, I hear something of this here. There are echoes in this poem, I think, that take us back to that. That in a way, our tendency is to want to confine our religious experience in a place. Right? Yes. To, to get hold of it so we can manage it. Right? So we can organize it. So we can control it. So at 10 o'clock, we know God is happening. <laughs> right? And we chuckle, but in a way, we're all party to this. It's comforting to know that God is happening at 10 o'clock or whenever you go to church. It's not right, but it's comforting. And Rilke is saying, as with the Transfiguration story, don't try to build that kind of temple. Build a temple for the listening of the broken creatures who are hiding in the woods in their fear and in their dark desiring, their longing, their longing. Listening. Look at one more. I'll give these poems to you. We'll take a short break in a moment. One of the most, one of my favorites. This one is from the second sequence. So he wrote the, these in two segments, one at the beginning of February and the second from the 20, 18th to the 21st of February, 1922. And he just called them part one and part two. So this is part two, poem 21. Singe die Gärten, mein Herz, die du nicht kennst. Sing the gardens, my heart, that you don't know. What an amazing claim. Ridiculous and wonderful. How do you sing a garden? Can someone help me with that? How do you sing a garden? Can you do it for me? Us? Can anybody sing? I mean, you kind of feel what he's saying here. Sing. What, what, how else could you say this? What, what would it mean to sing the gardens? To sing a garden? How can you sing a garden? Come on, we're in the full thrush now of, of early summer. It feels like that, at least today. How do you sing a garden? You glory in it. You praise it. You walk out and say, the rose. I walked past from the angel from tube station, and I couldn't resist coming into this little garden. I knew it was a dead end, and I had to walk back out again to get around the corners. The roses. How do you English do it? The, the Germans just can't get roses like you do. <laughs> they just can't. I don't know what it is. So you, 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 you glory in them. That's a wonderful phrase. Yes? There's something extravagant about singing. Oh, absolutely. So it could be one episode. Absolutely. You want to pull out. Yeah. Outrageous, over the top, you know, this organ metaphor. Pull out all the stops, all of them. You know, you can, it's, it's a great idiot. Most kids these days don't know what it means. Pull out the stops, what? What is that about? Pull out the stops on the organ. You know, so everything is playing. The high ones, the low ones, the ones you can't even hear, but you feel. You know, there are, or a big organ has notes so low 
that the human ear can't actually hear it, but you feel it in your body. That's the extravagant glory, the glorying that he's talking about. You were going to say something, too, about now, about with your heart, something with your heart. It's not about thinking here. It's extravagant, exuberance. Sing the gardens. What kind of gardens does he want to sing? The ones you don't know. The ones that are out there somewhere. He never got to Iran, to Persia. Although Lou, Andrea Salome, was married to a Persianist, an Iranist, a scholar of ancient Persian culture. And, well, that's another story for another time. <laughs> but um, but Rilke admired him and learned so much. He always wanted to go to Iran. He never, he never got there. He got to Egypt, but he never got to Iran. And so at the end of his life, knowing he would never get there now, he's going to write a poem about the gardens he'd always heard about, but would never see. What a marvelous thing. Like those poured into glass. Here, what's, what's he thinking about? A garden poured into glass? Well, it could be stained glass. Yeah, could be. Or? Wine. Vine? Wine? Oh, Shiraz. Well, Shiraz is a place. Shiraz is a place. He may have been thinking about, because he'd, seen, he'd been to Venice, and he'd seen the Murano glass of Venice. And if you've ever seen the Murano glass, they can do marvelous things. Well, it doesn't have to be Murano, but that's where glass making of that kind really was invented already in the Middle Ages, but all the way through the journey. People went to Venice to buy Murano glass. You couldn't buy it in, in High Street in London. Now you can, for a big price. Is it High Street, Kensington? You know, fancy stores? I mean, wherever the fanciest stores you could find, you can find Murano glass. But something about a fountain poured into glass, I have one at home. I should have, uh, I wasn't going to bring it with me. But imagine a, a, a garden poured into glass, which you can see, but you can't touch it. You can't touch it. The light shines through it. There's a radiance in it, but you can't quite reach it. Like those poured into glass, radiant, unattainable. Fountains of Isfahan and roses of Shiraz, waters of Isfahan in the German. But it was, Isfahan was a city in ancient Persia known for its fountains, its waterworks and its fountains. And Shiraz was known for its rose gardens. So he's imagining these two cities, Isfahan and Shiraz, fountains and roses of Isfahan or Shiraz. Zengezi Zeli. Can't quite say that in German. Sing them sacred and praise them, each of them incomparable. Amazing poem. So, if you're going to listen for the music that could save your soul, you're going to long to see a beauty so remarkable and so extraordinary, but you can't quite reach it. This is so a remarkable poem. Sing the gardens, my heart, that you don't know. So, one thing to sing the gardens you've seen, but what about all of the other ex examples of beauty that you'll never see? You can still praise, you can still glory in them. You can still be exuberant in your praise of them. 
What a way to live. You know, you don't have to go to see everything. You don't. You can praise what you can't see, but you can imagine. You can praise what you don't know, but you can imagine. You can praise what you'll never see, but you can glory. Show my heart that you could never live without them. This is an amazing vision of human life. I mean, if, if this poem, if you put this on your refrigerator and looked at it every day, it would change your life somehow. It would work on you somehow, slowly somehow, and deliberately somehow, and mysteriously somehow, and yes, somehow, you will live into glory, somehow. Show my heart that you could never live without them, that their ripening figs are meant for you, the ones you've never seen. You'll never see them. That all of that beauty is also meant for you. That you join them among the blossoming branches as their rising winds brush your face. Almost impossible lines to translate. Avoid mistakenly thinking that anything is lacking in the decision you've made to be. To be. Not to become. To be. Alive. To be. A person who can glory. Who can praise exuberantly. What an amazing vocation we have as human beings. You know, I sometimes think, my life is so little, it's insignificant, it's not that important. And then I remember these lines and think, wowzers. <laughs> wowzers. <sighs> what a life we have. Silken thread, you're woven into the tapestry, literally, into the carpet, into the weave. Whatever image you've joined yourself to in your heart, and we're back to that sense of the things in our heart, the heart work of coming to the images within us, whatever image you've joined yourself to in your heart, if only for a moment in this anguished life, feel how it belongs to the whole, to the glorious carpet or tapestry. I have to say a word about that because this little castle tower that Rilke lived in, in Muzot, that's how he pronounced it, Muzot, had no central heating. It was a stone thing. And if you've ever been in medieval castles, um, and you have plenty of them around to have visited here in old England, right? What do they hang in the, in the gathering banquet halls on the walls? Tapestries, why? For warmth, for warmth, for warmth. And if you were wealthy, you would hang car Persian carpets, if you were wealthy. And Rilke had Persian carpets, thanks to his benefactor, hanging on his walls. So in a way, he's describing living in this almost windowless place, in this probably very cold, very damp tower it had one room downstairs and one room upstairs in this castle tower 
this tower castle. And he's writing poems about the beauty of a world he had never seen and never would, but it existed for him. Sing, my heart, the gardens that you're down now. Like those poured into glass, radiant, unattainable. Fountains of Isfahan and roses of Shiraz. Sing them sacred and praise them, each of them incomparable. If we, if you, if I, could begin to live a part of each day praising rather than complaining. If we could live a moment in each day, living into what you so beautifully call glorying, rather than glumming. <laughs> what, sorry? Glamming. Good. And that's really, it, it, it's always invitation to us at each moment in our lives to choose to praise or to choose to choose misery. And really, the world around us doesn't make the decision. It's the world within us where the decision is waiting to be made. As I suggested earlier, these poems are not immediately accessible. They're, they're not meant to be. They're not meant to be difficult. And I think they aren't difficult, but they're deep. And the depth in the images that Rilke gives us, they need time to work on us. They, they, they need time. I just took, um, I've taken a group of students from my university to the community in, in Burgundy called Teze. Some of you will know Teze, and um, it's always a revelation for them that I asked them at the end of the week, what did, you, what did you think of the sermons this week? Some of you who know Teze are smiling. There are no sermons. There's not a single sermon preached at Teze. What, ha what takes the place of a sermon? Singing and silence. Singing and silence. Singing, and then the, the scripture is read, a short text, and the monks, because you, everybody registers, they know if there are Bulgarians, and if there are Russians, and if there are always Germans, and always some folk from the UK. So it'll be read in every language, one sentence of that text, and then a period of 10 minutes of silence. And then the singing begins again. And in a sense, that's the way to read a poem to catch some phrase, they always decide what the central sentence will be from the reading, and to live with that. And I would invite you to think about that as a way of reading these poems. We can't do much of it today because our time is somewhat compressed. So this is really a kind of introduction, an overture to these poems. You'll take them with you and and let them breathe, let them live, let them wander in your mind, in your life, in the um, days and weeks and months and perhaps even years ahead. So, I wonder if someone might read this poem for us. 
among the stars, what distances. And yet, how much more is one to come to know close at hand? Now, let's just pause there. Read it, read it one more time. Those two lines. Among the stars, what distances. And yet, how much more is one to come to know close at hand? Take one, for example, one child, and nearby a second. Oh, how ungraspable what lies between. Mm. Fate measures us, perhaps, with the tension of being, so that it appears strange to us. But consider the great tensions between a girl and a man when she avoids him and yet thinks. Everything is distant and yet nowhere is the circle closed. Look into the dish that lies on the table, so ornately set. How peculiar the fish's heads. Fish, of course, are mute. At least one once thought so, but who knows? Isn't there finally some place where what would be language for the fish speaks without any at all. Oh, it's got an amazing poem. <laughs> so beautifully read. What an amazing poem. I, it just, I don't know. If you could only write one poem in your life and it, w it was this poem, it would be enough. Really. This is an extraordinary poem. He wrote these poems, by the way, I didn't mention this, that when he heard of the death of a young woman who had been a playmate of his daughter, he, had one, he and his wife had one daughter, Ruth, who eventually spent her career, her life, until her uh, sorrowful death in the late 1960s, uh, managing his literary estate. And this young girl, uh, Vera Knup was her name, uh, from a family in, in Bremen, in the city of Bremen, in the north of Germany, where his wife was from, Clara. Her family was a patrician family, a wealthy family from Bremen, um, one of the great Hanseatic cities of Germany, trade city of Germany. He heard news of her death at 19. You see, she was a dancer as a little girl, and she mesmerized Rilke with her dancing. He, he had never seen anything quite like it. He was, a, he was the father of her childhood friend, so there was no hanky-panky. It was not that kind of a thing. But the relationship here of the girl and the man is Rilke and Vera, who's now deceased. And she acquired a crippling disease uh, already as a young girl and refused to be 
silenced. And so she began to paint and spent the last years of her life making art in ways that she could no longer do because her legs no longer functioned. She became paralyzed. And he dedicated these poems to her and sent the first copy to her, to Vera's mother. Really a remarkable thing. So it was the anguish of losing this image of, of a child who was so full of joy and movement, of dance. And then knowing as her disease progressed that she refused to be incapacitated as an artist. And she found other forms to express her creativity. That for Rilke was extraordinary. And this poem is one of the several in which she appears along the edges, a girl and a man. Among the stars, what distances? I love the way you read that. You just need space there. Now, what distances, right? What distances? And of course, already in Rilke's in, in day, people were beginning to understand the magnitude of the distances. Uh, until modernity, this was unimaginable. But the breakthroughs in physics, following the breakthroughs in astronomy, were giving people a sense of the immensity of the cosmos. And, of course, Einstein was already imagining the fact that this universe was expanding. Nobody had imagined this before. This was, we now take it for granted. We don't understand it. But that the universe is expanding at, a, at a, an almost unbelievable speed. Moving where? Do you know where? And from where? Do you know where? No. I mean, it's, anyway. Among the stars, what distances? And yet, how much more is one to come to know close at hand? How much more the distances when we get close to each other? Right? I mean, the closer you are to somebody, the more you realize how strange they are. No, how unknowable they are, right? How mysterious they are. It, you can say that with the masses of people out there walking down Kensington High Street or wherever it is, the Angel tube station coming out, the throngs coming out. But actually, the biggest distances are the ones we come to know with those we've lived closest with who continue to startle us. That's, if we could begin to live into a little of this, you know, we would never vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> no, we couldn't. Who has the capacity for distance to see the mystery in each human being? The mystery that is between us, that is the life between us. The life between the ones you love and the ones you fear and the ones you hate. We wouldn't build walls. We wouldn't vote for Brexit. Brexit, sorry. I, I say that with some respect, but from my point of view, we wouldn't vote to be on an island. We would vote to belong to a larger whole, whatever the distances between us. There, I said it. Respectfully.
take one, for example, one child. I love that. Take one. Don't, don't take the many. Take one, for example, one child, and nearby, a second. Oh, how ungraspable what lies between. Mind the gap. How ungraspable what lies between one child and another. Or between you and a child, or between you and your beloved, or between you and a, an unknown neighbor. Oh, how ungraspable what lies between. I think, I think that this is something about the way Jesus thought about people in all their mysteriousness, breaking the boundaries of law, of Mosaic law, that separated the clean and the unclean, man and woman, Jew and non-Jew. All the things that Paul says in Christ are broken down. But in the church, apparently, we haven't done so well. We just haven't. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said the most segregated hour in the United States is the hour from 10 until 11 on Sunday mornings. Right? Because otherwise, we're actually with each other. But at least in the world I grew up in, in the South, in the 1960s, there were separate places for blacks to drink. There were separate places in the restaurant for them to sit. They had separate schools. They had separate places in the bus where they were allowed to be. My family finally moved north. We, we, they, my parents were from the north. They couldn't, they couldn't make sense of it. They didn't want their children growing up with that outrage being unquestioned. And they suffered enormously for their courage to speak against segregation in the early 1960s in Arkansas, the state that gave us Bill and Hillary, well, Bill, Hillary, eventually. Fate measures us, perhaps, with the tension of being so that it appears strange to us. But consider the great tensions, the the great energies, tensions between a girl and a man when she avoids him and yet thinks. That's really an interesting line. Right? The power differential, the privilege differential of man and woman accentuated between man and girl, the vulnerability, the difficulty of trust, and yet thinks, and yet thinks. Everything is different. And yet, and yet, and yet, nowhere is the circle closed. What does he mean by that? What do you think? Nowhere is the circle. That things will come around, that things will continue on. Yeah. Nowhere is the circle closed. Nowhere is the line finally fused. It's always reach out, right? That circle. Look into the dish that lies on the table so ornately set. He's probably imagining 
what his, his cook had made for lunch that day or dinner. He had a woman who lived and took care of the house and cooked for him. How peculiar is Read the German from that line. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, How peculiar, how extraordinary, how singular, how unique, how strange, strange the fish's heads. Fish, of course, are mute. I love the way you read that. And just pause. You know, these are, these are Rilke's ellipses. Fishes, of course, are mute. At least one once thought so. But who knows? Really? Do you know? But who knows? But who knows? Isn't there finally some place where what would be language for the fish speaks without any? At all? You're chuckling. So right. Such a strange thought, isn't it? I mean, do fish communicate? We don't really know. They certainly move together. I was um, with my grown daughter and her husband in a place in California called Monterey, and they have their this magnificent aquarium, which has a, the largest tank connected to the ocean, which is full of big fish and little fish. And we, when you watch schools of herring, and you're looking at glass that's 40 feet tall and 70 feet wide, the glass is something like 15 inches thick plexiglass. It was a miracle to construct this, apparently. And you watch thousands of herring swimming. They are communicating. They are communicating. They move. Oh, it's a mysterious thing. I have it on my phone. I can show you at the break. Mm -hmm. It's incredible to watch it. It's mesmerizing to watch how they move together. Have some of you snorkeled and seen this? Yes. How fish communicate. How they do it, we don't know. Not in language like ours. They're not talking underwater. But they're communicating. What kind of language? Isn't there finally some place? I love that. Isn't there finally some place where we know we belong? Where we know everything is home? Where we know that we belong to each other? Isn't there some place where what would be language for the fish Speaks without any at all. <coughs> you know what? You feel what he's, he's, he's leaning toward? Isn't there? Oh. Let's hear it again. Let's hear it right again. Could you pass a microphone to somebody to read it and just give lots of space? Thank you. And take as much time as you would like. Among the stars, what distances? And yet, how much more is one to come to know close at hand? 
Take one, for example, one child, and nearby, a second. Oh, how ungraspable what lies between. Fate measures us, perhaps, with the tension of being, so that it appears strange to us. But consider the great tensions between a girl and a man when she avoids him and yet thinks. Everything is distant and yet nowhere is the circle closed. Look into the dish that lies on the table, so ornately set. How peculiar the fish's heads. Fish, of course, are mute. At least one once thought so. But who knows? Isn't there finally some place where what would be language for the fish speaks without any at all? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Beautiful. Yes, exactly. That's what he's saying. Not some place out there, some place we might go to, some place within us, some dimension of our experience where we could feel that we belong to each other. You see, this is somehow, and again, I I don't want to push this too hard at the moment, but the earliest visions that Christians, the followers of Jesus, seemed to have of the miracle of resurrection wasn't about something to a body that had been on a cross. It was about breaking down the barriers of separation between people within us and between us. This is what Rilke is, is leaning into in a remarkable way. The same sense of belongingness that we long for and we fail at over and over in our lives. In the brokenness of relationships, in the fear that separates us in our tendency to build walls and keep distances between us. And Rilke is playing with that sense here of the distances and the fullness of what's between, what could bring us together, what could be like the language of the fishes without any language at all. Yes. 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 It's actually seeing it more as if that's a boundary that you can't get over, but you always have. Yes. So it's like nobody is in a glass bubble. Yes. Everybody actually has a door or, yeah. or something Beautiful. that you can get through. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, I said one more thing. Yeah. When I love 
Yes, they have to stay. That's right. They have to be close. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And yet we know we know that the deepest communication we have as creatures begins when language ends. We know that. Well, except that we come to that through language. I mean, in, in a way, that's the, the kind of mysterious puzzle of it. That I don't think we could begin without language and get to the place of realizing that at the edges where language leaves off, the true mystery begins. Exactly. Exactly. But, but once, you know, you've said, I love you, I love you, I love you a thousand times, then the question is, what happens when you stop saying it? Yeah. Where you live into love and you're not, you know, or you don't feel like you need to say it every moment to reassure yourself or to reassure her or him. You don't need to anymore. I see that in an amazing way. My father is living into really deep, deep Alzheimer's now. And it's so beautiful to watch my mother and my father together. She, he doesn't recognize her anymore. He told her recently that he's moving to Maine with his wife. And my mother asked him, well, who is your wife? Bob, I'm your wife. We've been married 72 years. He was puzzled. He didn't quite know. But to see the love that exists in that kind of anguished, anguished place is from even the greatest gift, really, to meet my father again. Wait. Sometimes, usually not. Yeah, usually not. But he likes me. <laughs> yes. It is. Yes. No, it's nicely said. Uh, nicely said. Yeah, they are. And finally, there's a language beyond words. The language of the heart. The heart work. And the art of loving. That's right. I don't know how we can find an English word that makes that work. The Germans can do this, because the language allows you to, to, to re-hardize. Sounds awkward, doesn't it? But you're, you're getting to the heart of it. In a way, the heart has its reasons, which reason knows not. Pascal. That's really good. There's a, there's a way that we want to connect, and we often don't. We often fail in our hearts. The heart is not infallible. The heart is not a mechanism that we can command. The heart is a vulnerable, the most vulnerable part of our, of our experience, really. 
It's just a metaphor. It's not that throbbing muscle in our chest. It's that part so deep in us that carries life to every pore in our bodies. And that allows us to find each other across the, the gaps. Mind to gap, heart to gap, heart to gap. Somebody asked me, um, I was in giving this this evening on Meister Eckhart last night in, in ah, bath. <laughs> and um, somebody asked me at the end of it, I talked about Eckhart's notion that in, in every human person is, a, is a, a little spark, which is all that God sees, is the beauty with which God makes us, continually makes us. And they said to me afterwards, well, you know, you're an American. What would, what would you do if you met Donald Trump? And I said, well, my first instinct would be to kill him. But that wouldn't be good. And it wouldn't be effective. I would just sit down and, and with him and hold his hand. And no, he might not. But I don't think I could say anything. Yeah, he might. But it, I saw that, yeah. I am Kafka. I am it is. It is. And in a sense, there is a Trump in each one of us. That's why we find him so appalling. Because we recognize something of that fear and that loathing in us. I do. I hope it's not too much of me. But I'm uncomfortable with it. And yet I know that it's very human. It's very human. So how do we find the courage, which is a heart word, Courage. How do we find the courage to reach across the distances close at hand? The ones that are close at hand, with the people immediately present. The neighbor, the difficult neighbor, you know, not the easy one, the meddlesome one. Yeah. Nowhere's a circle close. That's exactly right. This poem is such a power to it. Nowhere is the circle closed. We keep trying to close it, and Rilke says it cannot be done. Yeah. Yes, it's dimensionless. No. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's pure Eckhart, by the way. I mean, he didn't know how to talk about a fourth dimension, but it is what physics, modern physics, physicists talk about as another dimension of energy that's not the spatial dimension, the three dimensions. There's another dimension. And, and that dimension holds us all somehow together. We don't see it much. The good word for it is love. And, you know, Paul just talked about it as Christ. That was his sense of Christ, in Christ. That's the phrase that comes through all the letters. In Christ, there is this miracle of, of, of realizing that we belong together across the distances we construct. Mm -hmm. Yes. That we belong together, that we're all one. That's right. So, no, there's a sense of Right. 
Yes. That's it. It's a wonderful way of putting it. I mean, there's a, there's a marvelous quotation which is often quoted. Many of you have heard it or read it from Thomas Merton, where he's standing in Louisville at the corner of Fourth and Walnut. And he suddenly and he sees all of these, this mass of people moving by. And he finally realizes that we, we're all one. We're one. We, we are one. Not that we even belong together. We're one. You know? We're one. I want to just voice the last poem, the second poem, on the back side. And um, who would like to read it for us? Ripe apples, bananas, and pears, gooseberries. All this gives voice to death and life. I sense an intuition. Read this on a child's face when she tastes this. For this comes from afar. Are you becoming nameless slowly on your lips? Discoveries flow now where words once were, freed unexpectedly from the hold of fruit's flesh. Dare to say what it is you speak of as apple, the sweetness that finally comes forth, shaped quietly in the tasting, in order to clarify, awake and clear, the fullness, sunny, earthy, present. Oh, experience, sensation, joy, immense. Ah, oh, great. Ah, oh, thank you. This is an astonishing poem. It's a good poem to read just before lunch. <laughs> or you'll find your way to an apple in the back. And I love this moment early in the poem, ripe apples, bananas, and pears, stachelbeeren, gooseberries. All this gives, gives voice to death and life. How? How? Ripe. Ripe, the ripe fruit. It's at the edge of it's dead in a way. It's 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 yield it, it yields its sweetness. It gives its life. In death. I sense an intuition. Read this on a child's face when she tastes this. Watch a child eat a ripe piece of fruit they've never seen before. It's a revelation. Well, this comes from afar. Are you becoming nameless slowly on your lips? Discoveries flow now where words once were. Here we are, back 
in that place beyond language, where we find something beyond what words can possibly convey. We want, we yearn for that sense, don't we? You and I? Freed unexpectedly from the hold of fruit's flesh. Dare to say what it is you speak of as apple, the sweetness that finally comes forth, shaped quietly in the tasting. I love the way you read this. In order to clarify, awake and clear, the fullness, sunny, earthy, present. Oh, experience, sensation, joy, immense. So we ended with this marvelous poem about sensation, about living in our bodies and delighting in the fruit that the ripe fruit that finds its way to us. I think Rilke probably had an earlier, an easier time with this than many of us because these days you get fruit in any season of the year, anything you want, apples in January, kiwi in April or August or whatever. And in Rilke's day, to have an apple was something that you might imagine in the winter, but other kinds of fruit would have been unimaginable. A pear. They don't, they don't do well in storage. Bananas. They only last a certain amount of time, right? Stockelbeeren, gooseberries. We're going to turn from these, this poem, these poems of sensation, of close at hand, of living in our bodies close at hand, in the things that are immediately present to us, including the fullness in the, in the distances that separate us from each other, to a series of poems, two poems, that are perhaps emblematic of the whole. This one, the third poem of the second set. Let's see, where's, ah, here we go. Song is being, Gesang ist Dasein. Gesang ist Dasein. We've been sensing that from the very beginning, this marvelous introduction of Orpheus in the very first poem. And this one follows close on its heels, the third poem in the first sequence. A god can do it. <laughs> what a line to begin with. A god can do it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in German it's a big G, but I think here it has to be a small G because he's not talking about the god, but ein Gott, a godly being, can do all of this. What about us? You know, what about us? Orpheus, okay, that's good for you, Orpheus. You can play your lyre, you can lure the animals and the birds out of their lairs and from their nests. You can gather them around you. You can woo them with the beauty of song. 
But what about you? What about me? What about us? What's our vocation? What's your life really about? Ein Gott vermag's. Wie aber sagt mir, soll ein Mann ihm folgen durch die schmale Leier? Could somebody read this poem for us? Where is it with microphones? Where is that? Ah, thank you, Bridgie. A God could do it, but tell me this. How can anyone follow him through the narrow liar? Our mind is divided. At the crossing of two heart paths stands no temple to Apollo. Song, as you teach it, isn't about desire, nor does it court what might be done. Song is being. Something simple for the gods. But when will we finally be? And when will he turn the earth and the stars towards us? It isn't this youth that makes you love. Even when the voice forces its mouth open for you, learn to forget that you sang out in the first place. This passes. But to sing truthfully is a different breath, a breath surrounding nothing, a blowing in God, a wind. Mm. Thank you. I love the way you read the very last line, especially a wind with your voice going up a little bit, which in a way is what the line is suggesting, even though it ends with a period, the last line of the poem. So following poetic form, the voice should go down, but with wind, your voice lifted up to write for the poem. A breath surrounding nothing, a blowing in God, a wind, a wind. Strange poem. It's a strange poem. This image of trying to follow Orpheus through the narrow lyre, through the instrument that makes the music, that woos the world from the places of fear and protection out into the open. One of Rilke's favorite words in his late poems, the open, das offene, prominent in several of the elegies. And here, all of these poems are about daring to come into the open, daring to come out of the places of our hiding, the places where we retreat to protect ourselves. We need those places, you and I. We, we, we depend upon having places of security. But if we stay there, if we stay in that sheltered place, we'll stay alone. And we're not meant to stay alone. As Hulika understands our vocation as creatures, as humans, among all the other creatures, wooed by Orpheus, 
out into the open, into this open space. I had the image up earlier, and several of you were studying it and commenting on it here. This remarkable drawing. Here's Orpheus with this melancholic view, leaning into the music, and here are the animals attending, the ears upright on the rabbit, here are the birds gathered around. A God who can heal, who can encourage, who can sing us into life. Song is being. Gesang ist Dasein. Really, there's nothing more to do. We can just pack it up, go home. Just take that thought. Song is being. And in a way, it's so simple. It's not easy, because it's not the reality we live in, which would say that song is entertainment, it's diversion, it's distraction. It's something beautiful amid all the pain of life. But Rilke would say, no, song comes from the pain more than it does from the joy. That image of Orpheus is Orpheus singing with the longing for what is irredeemably lost, but what he will not let go of. And the story in the Greek legend continues. He's eventually torn into small pieces. That's how he meets his end. And the song continues to be sung. Not even his dis dismemberment can stop the song. I mean, we've, I talked earlier about the, the, the way that in ancient Christian writings, in the classic late antique period, Orpheus became the kind of Old Testament for the Greeks. The image that was the prototype of Christ, the mirroring of what would come with Christ. And I was talking with Giles, is it? With Giles uh, at one of the breaks, that in a sense, I think we, we have such a hard time with the notion of resurrection because we apply it in often a, a rather syrupy way. I don't know another word for it. This sort of sugary way. And at least in the way that ancient, the, early, the earliest Christians used resurrection, it was, it was as if somehow in the midst of death, there are glimpses of a life emerging from the grave. In the midst of death, and in the midst of life there is death, which is Paul's primal image of baptism. How do we enter into the mystery of God? by being immersed in the death of Christ. We know about death, you and I. We don't know much about resurrection. And Paul refuses to make it easy. He puts it in, the subjunct in a conditional voice that we are immersed with Christ in death so that we might be raised up with him in life. Nothing automatic about it. 
nothing guaranteed. Glimpses, little glimpses is the most we get. And it's those glimpses that, in a sense, come through a poem like this. Glimpses of a song that cannot be silenced in death, in despair, in darkness. Song is being. Song is being. And this remarkable line. Our mind is divided. At the crossing of two heart paths stands no temple to Apollo, which Rilke presumed to be the father of Orpheus. He's quite mistaken in that, but that was his presumption, that Apollo, the god Apollo, along with Calliope, the muse, gave birth to Orpheus. Song as you, Orpheus, teach it, isn't about desire. It's not some nostalgic longing for what we've lost. It's not some syrupy fixing of the problem of death. It's not that. What is it then? What is song? I think this is the, the question that rumbles through these 55 poems and emerging, coming up again and again, as it does here in the third poem. Song as you teach it isn't about desire, nor does it court what might be done. It's not in the conditional about some activity that we might be called to do. Song is being. How, 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 how much stronger can one be? Song, gesang ist Dasein. Song is being. Oh, something simple for the gods. But what about you? What about us? And this, this remarkable question, really good. When will we finally, it's his italics, it's his emphasis, be? When will, we, when will you finally be? When will you be? Not when will you be something. When will you be? Be. When will you enter into this being, which is song? When will you, we, finally be? Now. Yes. Now. Here. Already. Already. Yes. Yes. I mean, in a way, it's, 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 he's sort of daring us. In a word he used in the, la the last poem he read about daring to taste the fruit. Daring to claim the flesh of the fruit, which is given to us in its death, so that the sweetness might be ours to taste. When will we finally be? And when will he turn the earth and stars for us? You can hear him really playing with us now. Okay, God, when are you going to do it for us? Come on, turn it all to us. I think there's an irony here. I think he's, in a, in a way, taunting us, as a poet can do. When will he, Orpheus, when will he finally Turn everything toward us. You know, don't you want that kind of fix-it, God? No, you don't really, because it's a fake. It's an utter fake. But it lives in so much religious rhetoric. 
And Easter especially is a, a hard, hard time to get beyond this kind of stuff. Because we're up against the greatest mystery, and we often treat it like we're describing how to change the muffler on a car. <laughs> the old one burned out, let's stick a new one in. You know, it'll make less noise. It'll produce better mileage. No, not about that. One of my painter friends reminds me that the most difficult task facing any painter, Christian or not, is to try to paint the resurrection. It's never really been done well, at least not in a realistic fashion. Maybe you, you know of a version that works. But I think Rilke would say, let's stay with that, because we, if we know that song is being, and that song cannot be destroyed, then we have glimpses, or we catch echoes, and that's enough. We'll never get more. It isn't this youth that makes you love even when the voice forces its mouth open for you. Learn to forget that you sang out in the first place. Learn to forget that you sang out in the first place. This passes. That's nice. But to sing truthfully is a different breath. And here, I think, is the heart of this poem. To sing, what would it mean to sit for you? What would it mean, not for Rilke, not for the poet, and certainly not for Orpheus? What would it mean for you to sing truthfully in your life? To sing truthfully is a different breath. It's not the breath of youth that falls passionately in love with the first beautiful or handsome creature that stumbles into our arms. That's not love. That's just joyful fantasy or wishful hoping or the burst of adolescence. But to sing truthfully is something different, a different breath, a breath surrounding Giles, here we go, nothing, surrounding nothing. Yes, yes. A blowing in God, a wind. What do you make of that last line? A breath, what is a breath surrounding nothing? It can't, a breath can't. Oh breath, you invisible poem. That's the beginning of the first poem in the second sequence. Breath, you invisible poem. What is it? What is breath, Carol? So say it again. I was thinking that one other thing about music is that it's nothing. It's nothing. It's a vibration. It's yeah, it is a vibration. Yes. No. And so a song, in a way, for me, a breath surrounding nothing, that's kind of the best nothing it can possibly be, is music. Beautiful. Um, 
Not a thing. Right. Yes. And I think, in a way, we live in a in a false sense of music now that we can turn on a radio and hear it, or turn on a CD player and hear it. We can produce music without doing anything ourselves. In in Vilka's day, that was just the beginning of imagining that there could be recordings that you could play. The very first recordings were made early in the, 19th, in the 20th century. The first recordings. And they were scratchy and terrible. And nobody could imagine what we now hear. But if you knew that the only music, that once you've ended with music, it's gone. Once you've played it, it, it disappears. It's not physically present like a painting or a photograph. It's Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Um, so, you know, the score or the CD. Or the interesting. Or Never thought about that. Yeah. It's just digital, like an, an, an encoded something, which is nothing. It's nothing until the intent. And then it's gone. And it's something at best we remember. And it may live in our memory, and it remains in us even when we've stopped hearing it with our ear. That is the truth of music. When you you mentioned Beethoven's Fifth, and immediately we're all hearing it. Dun 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 dun, dun 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 dun. Even if you don't know much about music, you know that much. So that somehow there is something, even though it's nothing. Yeah, true. Yes. 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 That's right. Spiritus, ruach, these, these words that, that bring spirit and breath together. Yeah. And there's something about the sense that when someone breathes their last, that idiom that we use. Yeah. That somehow, where does, where does the life go? It's breathed out into what? A breath surrounding nothing. A blowing in God. A wind. But to put those two together, a breath surrounding nothing, a blowing in God. What? A collision of opposites. A joining of, of things that seem not to belong together. All right? What's the old that Sesame Street song? There's something here that doesn't belong, right? <laughs> yes. I wonder if you could say what you think he means when he says, learn to forget that you sign out to Because I find it very baffling. It is baffling. Well, let's ask you. What do you think? What would it mean to forget that you sang out? Yeah. In a way, to do it, you're not thinking about it anymore, and, and you're not trying to hold on to what you once did. Oh, I sang once. Oh, I did sing once. Right? I mean, it's sort of the worst pastoral strategy to somebody to say, oh, your life is miserable, but once you were happy, ah, shit, is what you want to say in response to that, right? Don't give me that. I'm miserable. 
Don't tell me I was once happy. Don't tell me I once sang. Forget that you once sang. Because if that's what you're holding on to, oh, once I was happy. Oh, once I could sing. Well, I've given up on, on my vocation now. It isn't that. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's not it. Don't regret it. It it was what it was, but don't try to go back to that. That's a breath about nothing, surrounding nothing. It's a blowing in God. It's a a wind, not the wind. It's a wind blowing where it will. We don't know where it's come from. I mean, this is, this is not how Jesus described the Spirit to Nicodemus. What was he saying? One who is filled with the Spirit is like the wind, right? One who has been born anew from above, again, that Greek word is so ambivalent. That person is like the wind. He's not describing the Holy Spirit there in John chapter 3. He's describing someone who refuses to be bound by the old structures of the law that separate and divide, that seek to conquer. This is the fourth gospel, and this is the Christ image. And for the writer of this gospel, this is not the Jesus of Nazareth saying these things, the historical Jesus of Mark's gospel. This is the Christ. Well, that's another issue. Yeah, that's another issue. Yeah. There was. Yeah. Exactly, exactly right. This is the way that. That's it. And this is, this is Paul's vision of what it is to be en Christo, in Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, they're, they're voicings of what the early Christians believed and imagined. And felt. And it's come through communities that were struggling to find language to put around the unlanguageable experience of being gathered into oneness. Right? And they called it Christ, which wasn't Jesus fixed up after he died. It wasn't that. How we talk about resurrection, this is, a, this is a poem about a kind of resurrection, which isn't fixing death. It's breath continuing in the midst of nothing, death, darkness. And, and finally, that's our vocation, really, is saying. It's not something that we once did, and we have to come back to the place of doing it again, remembering it, oh, we once did it, we once sang. It's about living in this moment. The only one we have.
There is only one moment. Yes. I mean, that, that's the, one of the most remarkable realizations that we can make in our lives. There is only one moment. We talk about moments. No, there is only one moment. And it's this one. And it's gone as soon as we talk about it. Augustine struggled with this question. He said, you know, in the confession, I know what time is until you ask me. And then I don't know. But I know this, that the present, the past, is the present that no longer is. He gets the same thing from Augustine. And the future is the present that isn't yet. And for Augustine, all of these are present eternally in God, in, in this Christ, Christos. Not the Jesus of Nazareth, but in this moment of realizing that there is duality, fragmentation, division, sin, call it what you will, for us, but not for God. Not in God. That somehow there is resurrection and crucifixion always happening, always happening together. In this moment, the only one we have. Yes. 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 Abandonment into the present moment. The sacrament of the present moment. Yeah. Amazing text. Yeah. You've been wanting to get in, and then we'll turn to you, Carol. Yes. No thing. Right. I don't know what else we pray to. Yeah, because God is no thing. God is no thing along other things, alongside other things. What is what is what is the word God? Augustine profoundly wondered about this. God is just a word, Deus. For him, it was a two-syllable word, Deus. It was just a word we've attached to what is beyond anything we can possibly speak or know or imagine. And we've agreed in communities that use the word Deus, God for us, Gott for Germans, we've agreed that this is the exuberance of being. This is the, the ultimate expression of being. And Rilke would say, this is the sacrament of the present moment. <laughs> this ripe apple. So sweet. So infinitely sweet. Outrageous. I'm sorry you're not enjoying it. <laughs> Beautiful. A breath surrounding nothing, a blowing in God. These things don't belong together. And Rilke is holding them together to say, God is nothing, but there is, it's a blowing in what we call God. A wind, and it's everything. It's a blending voice. 
Yes. 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 A dazzling darkness, a full emptiness. I think, in a way, we've got these two stories rubbing right up against each other in John's Gospel. Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus trusts to say, don't hold on to me. And Thomas, who says, I need to touch you. I need to hold on to you. I, don't, I won't believe unless I hold on to you. And, you know, in a way, the power of Mary Magdalene's faith, and it is a faith, is that Jesus says, you don't, don't hold me. And the weakness of Thomas, whom he gives himself to, to say, hold me. We're both. Both are in us. The nothing that is God and the something, the everything that is God. Yeah. And the sacrament, I'm sorry to be sort of flipped with you to turn from this beautiful story of the apple, of the sacrament to the apple, but I think Roka would say, yes, it's not just that sacrament. The presence is in, in the moment. And I think if you're right, and I, I think you are here, that this is the, the communal reading. Rilke is inviting to. The next line I can only read as our pulling back in distrust or fear. And when will he turn the earth and the stars toward us? I don't know how else to read that line. All right? Because we don't know how to be. We fear it. We, we, we stumble with it. We long for it. But it's not something we generate on command. Right? Let's turn to the second poem, and then we'll come back to this one, perhaps. Oh, listening, close at hand. Listening was the first one, close at hand. And this one is song is being. Song is being. Let's, uh, let's fin look, read this one at least, think about it a bit. Um, this is one of my, I have to tell you a wonderful story about this poem. I've been thinking about this poem for a long time in my life, this particular poem. Anyway, this, this poem, um, an old friend of mine, an American federal judge, actually, whom I met uh, quite a few years ago, um, was we were having dinner one night in Boston, our Boston, not your Boston, our Boston. <laughs> yeah. And um, he said, oh, you know, I have this, my son is getting married this summer, and my friend Carly Simon, my jaw drops, your friend Carly Simon, my friend Carly Simon offered us her estate on Martha's Vineyard on the ocean and Martha's Vineyard to have the wedding. So, well, that's pretty cool. Can I be invited? No, you're not invited. <laughs> I thought that might follow. Nope. But he said, you know, I, I just can't come up with a gift for her. And I know that she loves Rilke. In fact, Orpheus is in her email address, but he wouldn't tell me that either. I was hoping he might, so I could be in touch with Carly. You're all old enough to know Carly Simon. Yeah. So, anyway, the, long, the short version of the long story is, I said, look, I'm just working on this poem. I'll, I'll, I'll do a fresh translation. You can give her this gift. Oh, he said, would you do that? I said, absolutely. So he had it, he had it produced in a limited edition of three, one for him, one for me, and one for Carly, <laughs> on a letter, letter print press, and uh, gave it to her. And apparently, it's by her front door. So the next time you go to visit Carly, <laughs> just open the door and say, I know that guy. 
if we translated that for you, and then ask, why don't you invite him over? <laughs> okay. Even though the world changes as swiftly as the drifting clouds. I love that beginning. That's, that, we know that's so true, right? The world is changing so quickly, like clouds that are racing across the horizon on a windswept ocean day. And nothing we do can stop them or slow them or change them. The book is so drawn to wind in these poems and trees at the opposite end of his imagine, imagining spectrum. Even though the world changes as swiftly as a drifting cloud. Who can read this poem? Even though the world changes as swiftly as the drifting clouds, all that's finished returns home to what's more ancient still. Beyond what changes and passes, further than this and freed of it, your pure song endures. God playing upon the lyre. Neither is suffering known, nor love learned. And what distances us in dying is not unveiled. Hmm. Only the song, drifting across the land, consecrates and celebrates. Hmm. Oh, thank you. Let's, let's, let's hear it read a couple of times. Could someone read it again? Could you read it? And, and why don't the rest of us just put your page down, close your eyes, and listen to the words come upon you. Read it slowly. Just hear, hear, it, hear it read now into your heart. Even though the world changes as swiftly as the drifting clouds, all that's finished returns home to what's more ancient still. Beyond what changes and passes, further than this and freed of it, your pure song endures, God playing upon the lyre. Neither is suffering known, nor love learned. And what distances us in dying is not unveiled. Only the song, drifting across the land, consecrates and celebrates. There isn't much sentimentality in any of Rilke's later writings as there was in some of the early poems, which, frankly, sometimes are so saccharine, the very early poems, that they can hardly be read. They're just full of sentiment, the, the earliest poems. But by this point, he had known too much suffering to be unreal. And he'd known too much loss to be unfaithful to what he deeply believed, which was that in the end, song 
will prevail. But the song will prevail, whatever the song is, only the song, drifting across the land, consecrates and celebrates. There's so much mystery here, I think it really gets saying. We, we never really understand suffering, our own or anyone else's. We, we face it. We, we face the acuteness of it. We face the terror of it in our own experience, in the experience of those we love and reach for and can't help. So we never really know it. We never really learn love. We learn about it. We stumble along. But it, it, it exceeds us. It exceeds us. But how can you say the song, the song celebrates. Only the song consecrates and celebrate. Yeah. Well, who's playing on the lyre? I mean, for a really good question is, how do we play the lyre? How do we, how do we pass through the narrow lyre? How do, how do we do what seems easy for the God, as we read in the last poem, or one of the last poems? What's, our, what's, what's your task, Giles? What's mine? Here, how do we enter into the song? How do we give voice to the song? How do we, how do we carry the song or let it let it go through us? Look at it, the line again. What distances us in death is not unveiled. We do not know death. We cannot know death. You cannot know death. You can, ex you can be with it. You can face it with people around you. You can sing about it. You can talk about it. Only the song. Only the song. No, but it does. It isn't. Yeah. But it isn't, right? It it it, it isn't, Diane. It, it isn't unveiled. You look pretty living to me. That's another thing, yeah. No, that's another thing. Yeah. When will you finally be? You know, Rilke's question for me and for you. Not in some metaphysical sense, but when someone you know closely dies and they're no longer, they're there. But something isn't there. But you know you're in the presence of. But you don't know. You can't know what's beyond that. No. No. No, we can. Yes. Yes. In faith. In your faith. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. But you can't know it with reason. No. It, 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 it's it's an, a, a sensing, maybe we could say, a sensing of, of something that exceeds what we can know. A knowing, good. I love that. A knowing.
And when you say it that way, the doubleness is so clear. It's a knowing. No. Yeah. An, an, an N-O-ing and a K-N-O-W-ing. Yeah? I think that's what you were playing with. I want to close with these two poems from a section I'll simply call Rest. 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 Let's look at the poem 122. It begins, we're always pressing. Here it is on the screen. We're always pressing. We're always pressing. The German is really a difficult German. It's very clear in German. It's hard to render this without sounding silly. Wir sind die Treibenden. We're the ones pushing, pressing. We're always pressing. The pressing ones sounds too precious to me. We're always pressing. So where's the microphone? I think it's here. Who could read this poem for us? Yeah, in the back. Thanks. We're always pressing. But this march of time, it's of little worth among whatever abides. All that hastens will soon be gone, for what lingers consecrates us. Children, don't waste your courage on speed or squander it in flight. All is at rest. Darkness and bright, blossom and book. Thank you. All is at rest. This is another one of those poems that gathers what Nicholas of Cusa called the coincidence of opposites, the collision of opposites, the gathering together of things that are opposed. Pressing, racing, flying, speeding, and things that linger, and things that are at rest. All is at rest. The ending, these last lines are so Simple. Alles ist ausgeruht. Dunkel und Helligkeit, Blume und Buch. All is rested out, is at rest. This is Rilke's claim, not his observation, really, his claim. Somewhere in the midst of all of the tensions that we face, it is, I think, why many of us here struggle to keep a meditation practice going. And it is a struggle. It is, for, for me at least, it's, it's not natural. Even though I, when I find my way back to sitting, at some point, I discover again why I do it. But it's not always easy, is it? Because the pressures are far more convincing to say, you don't have time for this. There is no time to do this. 
There is no patience to do this. There is no purpose to do this. Why do I do this? This is a poem that doesn't answer that question, but muses at that edge between the tension of our life and the sense that Rilke is convinced of that somewhere there is this rest. It's my it's it's in me. It's in you. It's in us. Sure. And it's no, it's not our being, it's our ego. It's but it's a part of us and it's it's yeah. It stays with us to the very end. It doesn't ever really leave us. And we, even if you know that this is right, it doesn't make it easier, necessarily, to know that this march of time is of little worth among... And this is a hard one. And um, the, the line, the fourth line here, is really... Difficult to translate. I, I pull these words apart, but inevitably we read them together. Immobleibenden. Whatever abides, not whatever abides. Whatever abides. Right? What always, but what always abides sounds trite to me. Whatever abides. What, what has this endurance, this, right, this, this sense of spaciousness? Somehow we know that that is true. Meditation gives us glimpses of that. We're, we're always pressing. I mean, to me, this is such a real poem in my own life. Because I think I don't have unlimited numbers of days and weeks and months and years. I thought I did at 20. You did too. Maybe at 30 you still did. Maybe at 40 you still did. At 50 you started to think, hmm... Hmm, half a century. Hmm. At 60, you begin to wonder, okay, at 70, at 80, we know that our life is finite. But we don't want to know that too soon. And it can be disturbing, or it can be freeing. I think this poem lives at that edge, between being disturbed and panicked about this, and realizing well, it's just the way it is, right? It's the way life is. We're always pressing. But this march of time, I know it's of little worth among whatever abides, but I don't always live out of that. In fact, I mostly don't. I'm being honest. You're nobler than I am. Maybe. Sometimes. I am too, sometimes. All that hastens will soon be gone. You know that. You know, slow, this is what I heard my mother saying for, she would still say it if she were here, Mark, slow down. <laughs> I don't know how many times she said this to me. I was an impetuous boy. Slow down. This is, this is really good saying. Slow down. There is no rush. For what lingers, consecrates. Us. Children. Don't waste your courage on speed or squander it in flight. 
All is at rest. There is. All is at rest. I can hear Julian's all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well which is not a saccharine claim. It's a deeper conviction than that. In the midst of all that is not well, there is something that rises in us, the song drifting across the land that rises occasionally in us and assures us that all is at rest. Darkness and bright. Blume und Buch. Flower. I say blossom and book just to give a little more of the alliteration of Rilke. Blume und Buch. Blossom. I mean, there's, there's still that in, I'm not still you, but there is, is it in, in you as well, Giles. There is that part of us that doesn't want to believe that we can't achieve it all, that we can't finally finish it. It's a powerful voice. Whether it's good or bad, it can drive us crazy. It's a natural voice. It's a natural voice. It's in us. It's in us. That's the point of it. It's in us. I live my life in widening rings that spread out to encompass everything. And I know I'll never get to the end, but I'll try. That's a poem, an early poem of Rilke's. But I'll surely try. And here at the end of his life, and he's sensing, I think, the end. He's turned 50, he's, or he's nearing 50. He's beginning to sense the illness in his body with leukemia. And he writes a very different poem. And again, if you think about Paul, this, I think we need to find a way of recovering Paul's primal vision. When Paul is, in the letter to the Corinthians, exegeting the creation story, he reminds us of something that's there, but we never quite saw it before. That in Christ, Christ brings lightness out of the dark. That's Paul's claim, 1 Corinthians 3 brings the light out of the darkness. Brings light, not into the darkness, out of the darkness. Out of the darkness. Yeah, they are together. That's, in, in a way, that's this creation story, that, that God brings light out of the darkness. What a, what a claim, really. We're going to end with one last poem, and then we're going to... Meditate. Let's turn to 229, which is the last poem in the book. And, you know, in a way, to come back to where we began this morning, these 55 poems, they happened in a torrent in about 10 days of writing over a three-week period. This, from the beginning, was the last poem. When Rilke finished this, when he knew it was, it was complete, that reminds my, my, my daughter, who's now 31, but when she was a little girl, she loved to paint, and we had a little easel set up in a, 
in a room in our sunroom in the house, and there were brushes there, and there were paints, and there was always paper. And I would occasionally read in that room, it was a sunny room. And I was sitting and reading one day, and she came in, put her little, she was so proper, she put her little, her little painter's apron on, and she got the brushes out, and she began painting. And I was reading, and she's painting. And then, at a certain moment, I realized that she was finished, and she took the apron off, and she put the brushes away, and I looked up and said, Emma, is it done? Yes, Dad, it's done. Well, how do you know? Dad, you just know. <laughs> I love that. You just know. That somehow, when Rilke finished this poem, I think he realized, this is the end. This is the last note. There is nothing more to sing than this poem. And it is tomorrow. Let's have a reader. And Rilke meant this as what he called a a cycle of poems. So this is the last in the cycle. Yeah. And he tinkered around a little bit with the order. He moved one up to the beginning. I mentioned it. We didn't read it. Breath, you invisible poem. That was somewhere in the middle of the last batch. He said, that has to be the first in the last collection, part two. So this is the very last poem. Quiet friend of such great distances, feel your breath and how it enlarges the room. Let yourself ring out among rafters hidden within dark belfries. Whatever depletes you will strengthen you in this nourishing. Go forth as you enter and leave into this change. What's the greatest suffering you've known? If what you drink is bitter, become wine. On this night, take this overflowing and be a marvelous strength at the crossroad of your senses. There, in the sense of what this rare encounter means. And if the earthly realm has forgotten you, say to the quiet earth, I flow. To the rushing waters say, I am. And there's the last word. Ich bin. But when will we be? That question. Lingering through all of these poems. And here's his answer. Here's his answer. Thank you. Quiet friend of such great distances. Is that how many times have we felt him talking about distances and proximities? About the space that exists between us, in, within us, beyond us, around us, in the stars, but also in the space between one child and another, between a girl and a man, between the things familiar to us and the things we don't know the things we've seen, and the things we've only imagined and will never see. The distances and the proximities for Rilke are brought so close together in these poems, again and again, as if he's going to say, refuse the false dualisms that construct our lives. Refuse that false logic which dominates our life. That time is racing, that we don't have enough time, 
that we won't achieve what we want to, that we can't have what we desire. Refuse this. Claim a deeper truth that all is at rest, that all shall be well. Quiet friend of such great distances. Oh, I added a little here. The German is much simpler. Stiller Freund der vielen Fernen, the many distances. Quiet friend of the many distances. Maybe that's better. I don't know. What do you think? That's what the German says. Der vielen, the many. It is unnatural. And maybe that's better to have it than a little bit unnatural in English, of the many distances. Maybe that's better. Thank you. Great, quiet friend of, of, of the many distances. That's better. Der vielen fern. Feel your breath and how it enlarges the room. I, I love the meditation you began, Bridgie, this morning. The first thing you invite us to do, which is familiar in meditation. If you don't know what else to do, just follow your breath. Pay attention to your breath, your breathing. Just be aware of the breathing in your body. How it comes and goes, how it enters the coldness of the air and leaves with the warmth of your lungs. Let it be beautiful. How it enlarges the room. Hmm. Oh, it doesn't do that. Or does it? Let yourself ring out among rafters hidden within dark belfries. A weird image. Let yourself, not your song, let yourself ring out among rafters hidden within dark belfries. Whatever depletes you will be, will strengthen you in this nourishing. And then this remarkable line, go forth as you enter and leave into this change. Go forth as you enter and leave into this change. What's the greatest suffering you've ever known? If what you drink is bitter, become one. Surprise the world. Do something outrageous. Transform bitter water into wine. You can, if you will. On this night, take this overflowing and be a marvelous strength at the crossroad, there in the sense of what this rare encounter with what? With whom? With yourself. With being. Yourself. With distance. With distance. And in the closeness of your breath. Yes. And if the earthly realm has forgotten you, 
say to the quiet earth, Ich renne, I flow. To the rushing waters say, Ich bin, I am. I want to simply pause with this poem. And this really remarkable day of conversation. I've learned so much listening to you help us find our way into the labyrinth of this remarkable poetic outpouring. Thank you. And carry these with you. See what happens with them. It's not surprising that the last two that they said, I am. Yes. That is the truth. That is the truth. And I, I love that place. I love it. Not I am. I am. I am. I am. I am. Thank you very much.